This is episode 300, and we're here because of you to celebrate this milestone. What we're doing is something a little different. We've got listeners, clients, and fans of the show from all over the world that you'll hear on this episode. They're asking things like, is intermittent fasting still useful or relevant? Diet advice for perimenopause? What your main health focus should be as a woman depending on your stage of life? And also questions about the podcast itself and how to start your own side hustle or business. And there's also some questions which are deeply personal that I answer as well, which really hit me in the feels to answer. If you're a fan of the show or you just want to hear what kinds of things other people are thinking about or learn a little more of how the podcast made it this far, then please join me in celebrating by diving into this episode. Let's go. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Can you believe that we are at this incredible episode number 300? Episode 300. I've put out 300 episodes that you have so amazingly absorbed and consumed and we've done it 300 times. And I'm, I'm just so incredibly grateful that I've been able to make it this far and it's only because of you. If you weren't listening and sharing it and doing all of the amazing things in podcast land, this wouldn't exist. My programs and services wouldn't exist. My ability to leave my day job, which was something that I became disillusioned with and you know didn't feel aligned with anymore, that wouldn't have been able to happen. So thank you. Thank you for changing my life and helping me to change the lives of so many people. Uh, it's just there's thousands upon thousands of people that listen to this show, and it's just blow, the numbers blow my mind every time I look at them. Um, just quickly before we get too far ahead of ourselves, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. If you're a regular listener, then you know at the start of every episode, I mention the mission statement that I have for that year. And that's one, to remind me of why we're here and what I'm trying to achieve in helping people, but also to remind everybody else that there is help available and that you are a part of my mission. And if, and if what I say and what I do aligns with you, please never hesitate to reach out and start a conversation because myself, my little team that I've got now, um, we're all over here on the back end waiting to be able to help the next person. So, so hopefully that might be you. Um, and links to all of that stuff are in the show notes below. So if you feel called to come into my world, work with me uh, beyond episode 300, please don't hesitate to scroll down there. Anyway, I just want to say again, a big thank you for getting us here. We started on January 21, 2019 was episode one. And I had a little 10 day release idea, which is that I released an episode every single day for 10 days. And then we released uh, an episode every single Wednesday for the last four, almost five years, which is incredible. So thank you uh, for, yeah, thank you for everything. Um, thank you for the ratings and the Apple reviews. Those things are so helpful. Because it's basically how podcast algorithms work is that they see five-star ratings and however many ratings you've got. And it helps bump you up when people start searching for episodes and content that uh, I might have released. So those things are so helpful. So if you've done a review, thank you so much. If you haven't done a review, I'd be super grateful if you could during listening to this episode, you could scroll down and check that out and do that. You can also on Spotify now uh, in the comments below, you can uh, you can make comments. That's a thing on Spotify now. So under every single episode, scroll down and do that. And I'm just sharing that because that is literally why we're here. And I just want to express my gratitude for everybody that has gone and done that and contributed in some way to you know the podcast notoriety, credibility, uh, and our ability to get exposed to new people because that's absolutely how it happens. So I'm very, very grateful. And of course, the shares on social media. Thank you. So today, I wanted to do something different. And as I try and do with all of these celebration episodes, I put them out to a community of people to get ideas. Uh, that might be the people in my mum's group on Facebook, which is full of women, mums, grandmas. Uh, I also talk to my friends, other podcasters in order to get ideas. And so what we're doing today is we're actually getting questions recorded on audio, sent into the podcast so that I can play them for you here. 
from avid podcast listeners, people that have been listening a long time, clients that have been around a long time, uh, and also people that are new as well that want to ask a question of me. And we're going to play that on the podcast. You're going to hear their voices. And it's so cool to make this a little more about community than necessarily about me or about any of the people that I interview who are sort of, you know, a lot of them have sort of celebrity status. So it's really great that we can bring in you and other listeners into this conversation. So we've got a bunch of questions. I want to get into them. We're going to bounce from health to some of my personal stuff. We're going to bounce into business questions, uh, menopause, intermittent fasting, food, nutrition. There's a lot going on. And we're going to finish with the question, which was about what I've learned from 300 episodes of podcasting. So we're going to kick it off. Let's check out who sent in question one. Hi, Maddie. This is Maria coming to you from the state of Virginia in the United States. I have two questions. The first question is, should diet change when experiencing perimenopausal symptoms? And the second question is, is intermittent fasting still a good thing? I look forward to hearing what your answers are. And thank you so much for all of the great content that you're putting out. Maria, hey, thanks so much for sending a question in. So fantastic question, you know, menopause, perimenopause symptoms. Um, So I guess my answer is should the diet change, right? I would say it depends where you're at. And that's the annoying thing about holistic health practitioners. They're very good at saying, well, it depends, (laughs) which doesn't give you conclusive information. So I'm going to give a general answer because the things that it depends on are how are your hormones right now? What are the symptoms you're experiencing? What is your daily life doing? Like, are you someone that goes to the gym and eats relatively well? Or are you someone who eats fast food multiple times a week, hasn't moved in a while, has a sedentary job, you know, has a sad life or a happy life or, you know, an abundant life or a devastating life? All of those questions relate to the condition of your body and and what you're experiencing. So I'm going to answer, well, any of these questions I'm going to answer generally. But With a diet, what I would say is that, you know, that transition from sort of menstrual years to your wisdom years, so your reproductive years to your wisdom years, um, there's definitely some things that we generally know across the board are happening to the body. And therefore, we can, you know, go about it, the diet in a particular way that is helpful. So in my experience, a lot of people in that space are obviously wanting to lose weight, but they might not be, right? They might wanting to just be managing the symptoms and looking after themselves as they go through that transition. So the first thing to, to do is hormone testing, right? And so you want to know where your hormones are at because that might d- dictate which foods are going to be introduced to your diet or removed from your diet. Uh, and so that's important. Get some data so that you know what's going on. But generally speaking, foods that will help minimize some of the symptoms, hopefully, hopefully there's not a guarantee, is that we want to be eating sort of, you know, your spinach, kale, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. And with all those greens, I'm assuming you don't have an oxalate issue, by the way. What else? beef, liver, you know, most animal proteins uh, in order to get vitamin K because vitamin K helps with bone mineralization. Because one of the things we see through the perimenopause menopause phase is that bone density reduces, which leaves you susceptible to osteoporosis, breaks, fractures, um, you know, brittle bones over time. And so we want to make sure that we're keeping the bones strong. Um, The second thing I would say to that is lifting heavy weights. You absolutely should be doing resistance training, all women, all men, everyone should be doing resistance training a couple of times a week. That's one of the other ways that you improve bone density is you put your bones under pressure, not picking up one kilogram weights and flinging them around, but some serious weight that actually, you know, don't injure yourself. Be smart. Make sure you've got good technique, get a PT, even if it's just once to teach you the form um, and then go about it yourself. But yeah, bone density. So vitamin K um, and lifting heavy weights. The other thing is calcium rich food. So the types of things that we want to look at, look, there's dairy, obviously, you can go into the space of dairy. If you're into it, yogurt, cheese, um, milk, uh, I generally steer most people away from dairy. And the reason for that is that there's a, just a lot of people that have better experiences. I say that anecdotally, but I also say that from a literature standpoint, is that removing dairy and cheese and milk and that kind of stuff can really reduce inflammation. So, But you can get calcium from those types of foods, but you can also get them from beans and lentils. Also, be careful with your gut with beans and lentils. You can get calcium from almonds. You can get it from various protein sources. Bone broth, incredible source of it as well. Um, leafy greens, which we sort of already mentioned in the, in the uh, piece before. Um, edamame, tofu, 
you know, that type of thing. But again, I'm giving general advice about which foods have this in it. It might not be the right food for your diet or for your gut. So calcium rich foods are something we want to add in. Vitamin D, super important, super important. We know, and you've probably know from hearing me rant and rave on this podcast is that vitamin D is associated with almost pretty much every single disease and every single illness and unwell state that you might be in. Vitamin D deficiency is connected. So most people are vitamin D deficient because we spend no time in the sun. So get out in the sun. You need to get in the sun or supplement and serious supplementation. A lot of the rec- general recommendations are extremely low and don't move much of the, you know, doesn't move the needle much. So, and vitamin D helps with calcium absorption as well. And the other thing that I would recommend, again, general recommendations, uh, omega 3s right? So they help the brain and the nervous system. And during this time, there can be a lot of, um, you know, up and down emotions, mood swings, uh, challenges in that regard. And the Western diet has a very large amount of omega-6s so that they cause inflammation uh, in, the, in a disproportionate uh, number. And so we need more omega-3s because they help insulate the nervous system and make sure that the brain is getting the fuel that it needs. So omega-3s, and you can get those from a lot of different sources. You can supplement them. Um, but I think one of the best ways to get omega-3s in, uh, aside from fish and fatty food, is also to look at spirulina and phytoplankton powders as well. Not all of them have absorbable omega-3s, so you've got to be careful there. But this is what I would be generally covering for diet changes in perimenopause. Again, I would probably change it a lot if you were sitting here in front of me and I knew a lot more about you as an individual. And the most important part is remove the shit. (laughs) Get rid of sugar, get rid of fried food, get rid of alcohol. Interesting statistic is that uh, this demographic of women, perimenopause to menopause age, is the only group across all of society that is increasing their alcohol consumption. Everybody else is reducing it. It's the only group. So there's some uh, there's a bit of psychology to look at right there as well. And the other thing, of course, is stress. And you might roll your eyes at some of these and be like, yeah, I know I need to get rid of stress and alcohol and fried food and sugar. But anyway, tell me what to take. No, the things you need to remove are deadly serious and will have an absolute impact on your, di- on your diet, your life, your health, your day-to-day psychology imperative. So that was question one from Maria. Um, question two is intermittent fasting still a good thing? Absolutely. So the thing is, we're in this little window of time where we're post the fad phase of intermittent fasting, right? It was a big fad on Instagram and Pinterest and all of those places and on YouTube. And it went for a few years and everyone was talking about it. And it was the best thing since sliced bread. And then now we're on the other side of it where we're starting to hear actually, you know, this is what happens with every fad diet cycle is we get to the other side of it and people say, oh, actually that didn't work for me. Oh, actually all of the symptoms and problems from that strategy are starting to appear. Now, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, not everything works for everyone right? And I would also say that a lot of the intermittent fasting message, which is not necessarily aligned with my message, is calorie deficit, right? Which is just use the fast longer and longer and longer to reduce your calories. I'm not on board with the calorie argument, right? I think people can do a lot without counting their calories and without starving themselves. So um, a lot of people went about intermittent fasting thinking calorie reduction, calorie deficit, um, rather than thinking about how can I eat for my body's optimal performance and health, right? Which is sort of the narrative that I come at it. Now, somebody might debate me and say, yeah, but the reality is it's still calorie deficit. And I say, sure, also piss off. Like you're focusing people's attention on the wrong thing and you're approaching the relationship with food with the incorrect psychology, which damages people for years and years and years. So intermittent fasting, the body definitely benefits from the cycle between feast and famine. Famine might not be the right word because it's a bit intimidating, but it definitely benefits. We know that. We've been doing it since the dawn of time until about you know, 1950, 1960, where we started three meals a day, sugar companies and food companies started encouraging snacking and eating between meals. And we got more and more uh, food that was in those three meals that was not actually satiating, which drove us to look for snacks. However, there are consequences of doing too much intermittent fasting and using an intermittent fasting ratio that's not right for you is that it adds extra stress to your body. If your body is already fucking knackered, you might not want to do it the way that YouTube says you should do it. We might need to do it differently. Also, people end up under eating. I see this all the time with women that have done fad diets or that are doing intermittent fasting. They're so conditioned as as a culture and a society to be under eating right? To eat less, eat less, eat less. I need to lose weight. I look fat. I hate myself. You know, it's just this ingrained narrative for so many people. And I would argue, you know, overweight men probably suffer from that same sort of affliction. Um, The other thing is that if you're under eating, 
you're possibly getting insufficient nutrition. And this is a question that I get a lot. Like, how do I get enough in, in an eight hour window or a four hour window? And if that's happening, we need to, there's a hierarchy of priorities, right? Fasting is not the main priority if you're not getting enough nutrition in to fuel your body, right? So it's a hierarchy of priorities. So we need to make sure that we're getting enough macronutrients and micronutrients to fuel your body plus help deal with the problems that we've got as well, whether that be fat loss or whether that be a disease, diabetes, cancer, whatever it is. The other concern is if you're under eating and you're fasting too much is that you burn muscle rather than fat. And you look at the scale and you're like, amazing, but actually you're burning your one of your most valuable resources in your body. So we, we can't let that happen either. And it might be also that you're just a different person with a different schedule and a different circadian rhythm with different genetics and you might need to eat breakfast and focus on the removal of snacks instead of the reduction or movement of breakfast or dinner. It might actually be that your your structure is okay for you, but we need to focus on getting nutrition in the meals and snacks out of the conversation altogether, right? And then maybe if that's what you're going to do, Maybe it's like one day a week we push the fast, right? Maybe it's like I don't do anything six days a week and one day a week I really push it out, you know, and again do a 20 and four or something like that. Um, But we need to be careful there as well that we're not triggering extreme hunger because then you'll just dive into overeating. So... The point is that there's a lot of disclaimers in here and a lot of caveats and that's because you're an individual and doing anything for too long or too much or too far is going to be damaging. Um, I think intermittent fasting is the tool humans have used for all all human history, all human history. And now the problem is that we've got, um, we've got sick people, we've got an overweight, sick world and therefore these tools need to be used a bit more strategically rather than just used in the way that we would have nonchalantly used them maybe 500 years ago when fasting was just like, oh, somebody hasn't eaten for three days. That's like, yeah, that's normal. Like, okay, nobody's thought about it. Better go and hunt a wildebeest, you know? <laughs> um, so I hope that answers the question. I think the answer to summarize, intermittent fasting is absolutely still a thing and we should absolutely be doing it, but you need to get it right for you. And that strategy might need to evolve or change based on whatever your health is going through, because we adapt. We adapt to situations and we need to change them up. Hi, Maddie. I'm Cherie from Ipswich, Australia. My question is, what are some tips to recover from ADHD burnout that has got so chronic that there's absolutely nothing left in the tank? And then part two of my question is, what are some tips, tricks or hacks to prevent getting burnout in the first place? Oh, Cherie, I'm sorry if you're asking for yourself here. I'm sorry that you've got this burnout and just you feel like you're at the end of your tether. But thank you so much for sending this question in. Um, and for anybody that might not know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is what Cherie is asking about in regards to ADHD burnout. Uh, and it's becoming more and more common. These types of behavioral challenges and brain challenges and disorders and diseases and illnesses are becoming more and more common, which is a big part of how I'm going to answer this question. So firstly, is that I am not a huge fan of the classification system of whether or not somebody has ADHD or ADD or a number of other things, because it it's set up in a way where everyone is somewhere on the spectrum. And so there's one problem with that, firstly, is that everybody's going to look for a label to, to judge and categorize a set of behaviors in which might be actually just absolutely normal um, and uh, and a response to the world that we're in. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, and of course, there's going to be a group of people that actually have genuinely their brain structured in a different way for very specific reasons. And so I don't like the idea that we're all on the spectrum and I don't like the idea that Western medicine is so is so willing to run at 100 miles an hour towards you to be like, here's your label, here's your label, here's your label, here's your excuse for how you behave, here's uh, our excuse for how we engage with the world, you don't have to get better, you know. And I'm not saying that this is anybody that's listening, or you, Cherie. My point is that I I have beef with the way that the medical industry goes about creating our, a culture around disease and illness and challenges in life. Um, and But for some people, it is really real. So ADHD, right? So in ADHD people, generally the frontal lobe and the frontal lobe of your brain is if you put your hand in the middle of your forehead, that's your frontal lobe. Um, it's a little bit smaller. And what we find is that there's lower levels of the neurotransmitter norepinephrine, which is linked in with dopamine. So dopamine's the happy hormone, right? It's, it's the thing that drives pleasure-seeking behavior uh, and really useful 
useful because, you know, if we didn't have it, we would never have hunted, we would never seek sex, we would never eat. And so it's actually a really, dopamine's really useful. Uh, and it's supported by norepinephrine, right? And there's four areas of the brain that have lower activity in ADHD than other people, right? And so it's the frontal lobe, as we just touched on, which is sort of where attention, focus, executive function, organization, rational, logical decisions happen. So there's lower uh, stuff going on there. The limbic brain, this is your emotions and your attention. And people that are really good at sales and marketing are usually trying to tap into the limbic part of your brain because we make decisions on emotions and then we justify them with logic. The other part is the basal ganglia. So this is, again, attention and impulsivity. So there's lower activity here. And then there's the reticular activating system. So this is a major relay system that enters and leaves the brain and sends messages in and out. And there's problems get with messages getting in and out that can lead to hyperactivity and impulsivity and attention. So that's a really quick general overview of the areas of the brain that aren't quite operating the same. And so my recovery tips are going to be the same as the prevention tips, right? The way to think about it is this, control your brain or it will control you. And you absolutely can rewire your brain no matter where you are. There are stories all over the world of people rewiring their brain in regards to disease, like people that didn't have the use of their legs walking again. This is all brain and nervous system rewiring and neuroplasticity is absolutely possible that you can improve and change. And so we want to move away from wearing ADHD as a badge of honor or a piece that we strongly identify with because it will be much harder to change simply because you don't really want to break up with that label. It's a part of who you are. So don't identify with your challenge as part of who you inherently are. Start there. That's the first piece I would start with. You know, if you notice that you tell people a lot that you have ADHD or ADD, or it's a real important part of your life, then I would start looking into that piece to be like, how can I de-identify with it? And it just be an experience that I have as a normal human, right? The other thing is you can use it as, as a superpower. That's another way to leverage it in a positive light. Okay. Some of the more practical stuff. So what we want to do is it's, it's proven that we can rewire the brain. It's called anti-Hebbian learning theory, which is neuroplasticity. So do that. Um, the other thing is dopamine fasting, right? So you need to slowly train yourself out of dopamine addiction and that hyperactivity stimulation seeking behavior. Sure. If you've got ADHD legitimately, and it's not just a symptom of the modern world, and I'll talk about that in a second, is that you can absolutely train yourself back to being quote unquote normal. Equally, even if you can't back, get back to normal, if you're 10% better, won't that be helpful? 20, 50, 60, 90, all of that's better. Um, and I would recommend listening to the podcast episode I did with Professor Anna Lemke, uh, who is a psychiatrist at Stanford University, episode 295. She wrote Dopamine Nation. Highly recommend listening to that book. And so the dopamine fasting is going to involve improving the relationship with your phone, improving the relationship with sugar, Netflix, having too many tabs open on your laptop or computer. If you're someone that doesn't close your computer down at night because you've got too many tabs open, you've got to change that. Uh, improving the relationship with alcohol, reducing your to-do list rather than having a to-do list and a, and a to beat myself up for not doing list, <laughs> right? Um, I really think dopamine fasting is at the core of this and, and we, in order to recover your brain because life isn't going to get less busy. There's not going to be less things. So you have to be in control of what you allow in, right? You have to be in control of the space you take between thing A and thing B. You have to be in control of the amount of times you pick your phone up. And that might feel like a big cognitive load to be like, I've got to be in control and pick it up and, like, and do all these things. Put physical barriers in place. Download app blockers. Buy those containers and jars you can get on Amazon, which have lids that lock and you can't unlock them for ages. You know, even if you try and smash them, they're, they're smash proof. So there's things that you can put in place, but you want to recover from the burnout first and then prevent it in the first place. So you absolutely need a healthier relationship with all of the stimulation. Because remember these people and possibly yourself, Cherie, uh, are hyper stimulated and, and are perpetually seeking that stimulation. Now I want to talk about, or for, the other thing is omega-3s get lots of good fat into your body because your brain and your nervous system operates on fat, healthy fat, right? Which can be found in animal products. Omega-3s can be found. I, I mentioned it before in question one, right? So the other thing I want to mention is symptoms of this world. This world is not made for humans. Marketing companies, advertising companies, and businesses, they operate in a way that is designed to hijack your brain and get you to behave in a certain way. And you could go super deep down the rabbit hole and argue that governments benefit from this too with the ability to control populations conversation for another day. But the point is that remember, 
it's normal to be a little bit ADD or a bit ADHD because the world is set up to addict us. Apps are designed to addict us. Poker machines are designed to addict us. Um, Food is designed to addict us because they're businesses that want return customers and business people want to make money and have an amazing life for themselves and also impact all of the people that they, they are selling to as well. So remember, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, All of it is designed to be addictive. And if you've been on those platforms for a long time, you'll have seen the evolution of addiction as things like, you know, we've got stories and shorts now, which are hyper addictive, right? And TikTok, and it's hyper addictive compared to where we were five to 10 years ago with social media. So remember that those kind of challenges you're having with your brain and focus and productivity, it's, I would say a big part of it is a normal piece of the puzzle for almost everyone. There's some days where I would absolutely classify as ADD or ADHD uh, because I'm caught up in this world. But then I have to put my practices back in place and sort of wind myself back, take a break, get back to the breath work, do all of these calming nervous system things so I can start focusing on one thing at a time. So that is my answer to your question, Cherie. If you're a woman or a mother or a grandmother, then I have an invite for you. Ever dreamed of breaking free from emotional eating, embracing healthy habits that actually feel good, and connecting with a community that truly understands your journey? Well, let me introduce you to the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, where we can begin changing your issues with sugar, overeating, and binge eating. If you're like many of the different women that I've worked with over the last four years, then you've probably tried countless diets wrestled with sugar cravings and felt the frustration of not being able to maintain a healthy eating routine long term. But guess what? You're not alone. And there is a solution to this very problem, which begins inside my free Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group. When you join our group, you'll experience an uplifting community of like-minded souls, insightful Facebook lives, posts that push you in a loving way outside of your comfort zone, and direct Q&A sessions with me, your health guide. Plus, as a warm welcome, you'll receive my How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook, also completely free. The link for all of this amazingness is in the show notes below. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, yet another group I'll join and forget about. Well, let me assure you, there's no forgetting here and you won't be forgotten about either. We tag and reach out to members regularly to keep you accountable, engaged, and to keep the community moving forward together. Our group thrives on trust, support, and experience-based strategies, which comes from the years of experience that I've gained helping people with their health and emotional eating issues. So if it's time to take that step toward a healthier, more vibrant you, then swipe to the show notes below, tap the link, and answer a few questions to gain entry. And remember, it's free. I look forward to chatting with you inside the Healthy Mums Collective in the DMs or on a post really soon. Remember, the link is in the show notes below. All right, the next one. This is Gemma from Hobart, Australia. And my question is to you, Matty, when you were working for the man as an employee and you decided to branch out and be your own man and work for yourself, what were the systems and processes that you put in place so that you could take that leap? And also, how did you have the courage to do that? And also know that you can make it work for you, whatever that meant for you, and also to be able to support yourself financially and even emotionally with confidence and such and resilience. Thanks. Oh, what an interesting question, Gemma. Thank you for sending this in from good old Tazzy. Um, So interesting. And for anybody that might be wanting to start a side hustle or a business, maybe this question will help you. Um, So what systems and processes? I guess the first system that I put in place was the podcast, right? So my motivation in the beginning when I started this show was just to get what I was learning inside the hospital and outside the hospital out to as many people as possible. I was sort of really coming to terms with the idea that wow, not many people get well using the hospital system. And if they do, it's just holding symptoms at bay. It's not moving towards recovery, health or optimal states. And so I really believed that how to not get sick and die was super easy for the most part. (laughs) And it really is. I believe that. I strongly believe that, which is why I went with the podcast name and why this is a bit of a one-stop shop and we cover all areas because I think 
all tools have the right place in the healing journey um, and it might be right for you. It might not be. It might be right at another time, not right now. You know, Western medicine, I think, is useful contextually speaking. I think all of them are useful contextually speaking. Um, and so the first system I put in place was the agreement with myself. I would never miss a Wednesday of the podcast. Um, and so that was the the sort of accountability thing. I'd burnt myself out trying to be on Facebook all the time and on Instagram all the time and on YouTube. You know, I started this thing on YouTube called 60 Second Sunday and you could probably YouTube that. There's a few of those videos, but I just burnt myself out um, trying to keep up with all of the platforms. So I had a mentor that just said, what is the thing that you're best at doing? And I said, I think speaking and communicating. And maybe you disagree, but if you're a listener, I think maybe you might agree. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so it was like, what platform is going to be optimal for that. I was like, oh, I think podcasts and conversations and I love humans and I love getting to know people and I'm deeply curious. And so it was like, okay, stick to the podcast and who cares what else happens on any other platform. If you post, you post, whatever. There's no commitment or accountability to the other platforms. Stick to a commitment with the podcast and see what happens. And so I committed to 100 episodes and that became the first system right? And beyond that system were then the systems around the podcast of like how we book people in, how far ahead of schedule we remain, uh, you know, the type of content that we want. Um, and so, yeah, it was so incredibly helpful. And I, I got up to episode 80 by myself. And there was one night that I was sitting there at, on my laptop. It was 2am. I had work at the hospital the next morning at, you know, eight or whatever. Um, and I was editing episode 79 or something. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be a podcast editor of a free show with tons of free content, hours and hours of free content for the rest of my life, which means I'm just going to be staying up late outside of my day job, not earning money from my side hustle, from my side thing, and not partaking in my relationship and not showing up at events because I'm just going to be at home editing free content to give people free stuff and not being able to fund myself, pay my own bills. And I just had this moment of like, I can't do this alone anymore. Um, you know, at this point, we'd, we'd almost gotten to 100,000 downloads. So I had a little bit of evidence that some people wanted to hear it. Yeah, so then I, I, I hired. I hired my first assistant, um, who actually you're going to hear in one of these questions, which is pretty incredible. Um, and my first assistant and then Chani, Chani, who is putting this episode together. He has been the multimedia master of our little team over here and my little business and the podcast since episode 80. Uh, and he's editing this one right now. He's probably laughing listening to me say this. Um, and so that was when I, that was the system that I was like, I can't do this alone. I need some fantastic humans to join me on the journey. Um, and ever since that has been the system that has upheld and kept me accountable to continuing to put out content and continuing to show up. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, in regards to like having the belief and the confidence and the courage is that I was in a, you know, a nine year, nine year relationship and I had someone that loved me and that could financially support me if it didn't go well, though, you know, I never needed her support at the time. And that was years ago now, many years ago, but, but I didn't need the support. Um, but the security mentally and emotionally that if it all falls to bits and I have to move out of my apartment, you know, and move in with her and, um, she could feed me like that, that was just incredibly helpful to have that backing. And, and some people might get that from a partner. Some people might get it from a friend. Some people might get it from their parents, you know? So, yeah, it was helpful. Um, and that transition, my plan was to go part-time, you know, slowly and go from full-time from five days to four days, three days. And that would have been the ideal scenario. However, a pandemic, quote unquote, pandemic happened. And then uh, there was ethical issues that led to at the hospital that I felt very in conflict with and was very verbal about disagreeing with what was happening at work. And so I went from five days to zero instantly. I did not plan to jump in the deep end um, and, and just, you know, back myself. I didn't, I had morally and ethically, I feel like I didn't have a choice. And so, which is, you know, very in alignment with the stuff I talk about on the show. And at that time, when I left, I also had 20 weeks pay out because I never took my annual leave and sick leave and all these other things that I got paid out. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, a part of 
how I exited. Um, but having the courage, I think going to business networking events, I started doing stuff with a job, um, you know, already to build that courage. So I sort of thought, you know, in a couple of years, I'll end up leaving. And so I started doing all of the side hustly businessy things before I left, building the belief, learning how to think about uh, money differently and business differently. Once I realized, and you might realize this now, Gemma, or maybe you already have realized that and moved beyond it. Um, and this is for anyone listening, is that idea of a money mindset and an employee mindset. It's talked about a lot in business is that the entrepreneurial mindset and the employee mindset are very different. And I would encourage you to go and Google that idea because there's a lot of fantastic content on all of the belief systems that need to change in order to be a successful business owner. Um, and it's it took me years to change that stuff. I'm probably still working on it. You know, I didn't grow up in a business-minded family, very normal Australian family. Um, and so therefore, 99% of people around are employees. So it's a particular way of thinking. But the thing that was hard to adapt to in that idea of changing my mindset is a regular paycheck. Oh, we're so married to the idea of a regular paycheck. And I can tell you, I had some conversations with my parents about the emotional challenges that come with this just on the weekend is that, yeah, the not knowing where the next chunk of money is coming from is scary, especially when you've had years and years of conditioning of like every Wednesday, I get this much money. You know, once a month, I get this much money. No matter how much effort I put in, no matter how good I was that month, this is what happens. And then you end up in a situation where, and this has been the case for me, is that you go months, months with no money coming in, right? Nothing. And then you might have a month where a program begins and I see more money than I've ever seen in my entire life, which is like, oh my God, I'm successful. And then you're like, hang on. You need to make this last six months. <laughs> You've got staff to pay, rent to pay, you know, apps to pay for. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big factor in it. And the pressure of money causes fights. It's one of the big things in relationships. And, you know, so at the time in COVID was going on and all sorts of things were going on. I was having fights with people, uh, my partner at the time. And, you know, and I also felt like a failure at family events. That was something I've had to contend with and still do is that, you know, you catch up to family events and at my age, I should be settling down and getting married, uh, which I would love to do, by the way. Um, but, you know, be with the right person and be buying a house and you know, have the white picket fence kicking along. And that's something I really battle with is that when I meet people um, or when I talk to family is that the things that I have to report for my age aren't what is expected of me. And sure, I can do whatever the fuck I want. However, there's also a part of me that wants to be a part of the collective and a part of society. And I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, it's just that this path has meant that I've taken some huge risks and gone about things in a very different way. And so that's also a piece of it. And there's another lucky piece of the belief system stuff that I'm just lucky to have, which is fundamentally my belief sort of about myself and my own life is that life has been pretty easy for me. Uni has been pretty easy for me. School was pretty easy for me. And I truly believe that I can learn anything, which might sound a bit arrogant. What that means is that I can therefore do anything because I believe that I just need to learn the skill set. I sort of don't have this, oh, that's not really for me kind of mentality, or I don't do those things, or I don't have that skill set. I just think like, yeah, I'm, life's been pretty easy. I can do most anything. I just need to learn, basically. That's really helpful. <laughs> so yeah. I, the other thing to say is um, you need supporters. No one does anything alone right? You hear me on this podcast. I've got a team. I've got friends. I've got family. Everybody supports me. Everyone believes in me. Um, and remember, you know, Australia particularly has a very bad tall poppy syndrome where people get judged and pushed down and squashed uh, for being wanting to be successful. Australia, I'm pretty sure Australia was voted the worst country in the world for tall poppy syndrome, um, which sucks because Australians were such nice people until you're trying to be better than me which is, you know, actually like fuck off, right? That's a toxic, horrible culture that we've got here. So the good thing that I really enjoyed about moving from employee mindset and friends was moving to business owner friends. Everyone champions everything you do. It's fucking amazing. Like everyone's in your corner. If you've got an idea, pretty much everyone's like, oh my God, that's a cool idea. You could be a bazillionaire. You could change the world. You're going to be amazing. And you tell somebody like in your family or, you know, that's an employee friend and they're like, oh, that sounds too risky or sounds like a lot of work. When are you going to go on holidays? You know, it's just like, or why would you do that? I know bloody Bill down the road tried to start a business and he's in a hundred grand debt right now. You know, like just, you don't need that energy in your life. You need supporters. Nobody does it alone. So, you know, those business networking events and there's groups online and, you know, many of the people that I, I'm a part of my community are overseas. 
We catch up regularly on Zoom calls. I literally just got off a Zoom call with my wonderful friend who you can hear on this podcast, uh, Danielle Dame. We catch up on a Zoom call every single week. We're on this journey together, you know, and we caught up when I was traveling the world this year as well. I went to Canada. So supporters, you absolutely need them. Um, and I guess to answer the, the, the systems question a little bit more uh, fully in a more practical way about money is that you need a way to build an asset and a group of people that you can help right? So the podcast was that for me, the Facebook group is that for me is that that is an asset to a business that like, this is where the people go that need my help. And therefore, at some point, hopefully I can offer them programs and services that will be able to help them and helps me fulfill my mission of helping people. I would say get some mentors, like-minded people, supporters, I just mentioned money, bills are a real thing. When people say go all in, money is real. You need money to pay bills and look after your kids and eat. So you've got to balance the, you know, the, the level of risk with you know, the possible ways that you can earn money and rather than just jumping into your passion and saying, I'm passionate about this. It'll all just work out. I've, I've seen so many people do that in my business journey um, that listen to business coaches that were just like, go for it, babe. You do it. You do you. And then a few months later, they were like, oh, I'm back in a job because business is hard. <laughs> um, so you need, you need to think about money as much as you want to think about helping people and the impact on the world. You must think about money. Money makes the world go round. Sure, you know, you don't need to be money motivated. I would say, you know, I've had lots of experiences in the last five years where I realized I wasn't a money motivated person. Um, But you need to find the ways that your motivation does drive you to collect money along the way so that you can pay the bills and you can feed the kids and give them all the opportunities. The other thing I would say, emotional processing. This is life advice, but emotional processing, get a psychologist, have a journal, have a partner, have a regular toolkit, which might involve some of those friends so that you can actually process your emotions, your feelings, uh, the challenges. It's a scary journey. There's no security in business. You know, We've seen big businesses, multi nine-figure businesses in the world collapse overnight. We've seen banks collapse, right? You know, Business can be scary, but equally, the person that doesn't try fails. Okay. It's a hundred percent failure right there. So get all of the stuff I've mentioned and get involved, back yourself, believe in yourself, reach out to me. I'll support you. I've um, had a number of business mentoring clients actually over the last few years of people that have been following me. And so I've helped people there too. It's nothing I've ever advertised. I just organically, um, you know, respond to people that reach out. And so I've worked with a few people. So I'd be, I'd be happy to help if anybody wants to reach out. But um, anyway, that's my answer to that question. Let's bounce into the next one. Hi, Maddie. It's Jenny from Melbourne, Australia. My question to you is, what are the two most important health focuses for women at different life stages? So, for example, what would you recommend to my 13-year-old granddaughter? What should she focus on? What should my 38-year-old young mother of two daughter focus on? And what are the two most important health things that I should be focusing on if I was going to do that in my 60s? Thanks, Maddie. Ah, oh, Jenny, this is such a good question. Uh, and for everybody listening, Jenny has been around in my world for some time now. She was a client initially and she's in my membership group and she's hooked me up with um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy experiences and infrared sauna experiences and we've caught up for coffee before. Jenny is just fantastic. I love that she's in my world. But this is a really good question, especially because you know everybody on this podcast is either a woman or has a question about how it will affect the women in their lives. So this is really, really good. I love that we've we've gone through sort of the three stages of life. So, okay, just two. This is going to be difficult to just say two for each of these demographics. So we're going to start with teenagers. So I would say the most important thing for teenagers is sleep because that's when teenagers and kids are growing. That's when they're building the body that will take them through the rest of their life. Teenagers often sleep really long hours or randomly will sleep for really long periods of time. Um, And so I think that that's really important to prioritize. We want to build this really resilient, strong human, right? We want to allow the body to be asleep for as long as, as long as it can in a healthy way so that teenagers are building their body and their health. The other thing is I would say, particularly for teenage girls, is instilling healthy behaviors and lifestyles and relationship with food. This is, you know, getting outside, exposing them to different foods, exercise, but 
about the beliefs and behaviors that's really important is this is where a lot of eating disorders and obsession starts. And that's because either mum didn't model it in the home correctly or the social group at school was hyper-obsessed with image and we're really challenged by this in the modern day with Instagram and TikTok. So we really need some strong role models at home and and some guidance to make sure that our teenage girls and young girls and, and in their 20s, you know, are really getting the right leadership and input around their relationship with food, body image, self, sexuality, uh, and, and that type of thing. So for teenage women, teenage girls, I honestly think sleep and these health uh, belief systems and behaviors that we want to instill, the doing and also the management of ideas around this that can be really triggering and challenging, I would say by far are the most important two things for teenage girls. All right, mum in her late 30s, and I guess we can loosely say late 30s, early 40s. So I would say regular healthy nutrition and stress management because this person's usually absolutely run ragged, full-time job, um, chasing the career as well as looking after the kids as the the husband and the mortgage and there's a lot going on, right? So stress management techniques that are non-negotiables, breath work, yoga, meditation, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do, right? So you might need to get the husband involved in a way that um, is different. You might need to get a babysitter once a week so that you can go and look after yourself or or get your family members or friends involved or mother's groups. Something has to be different, right? And the healthy nutrition because again, run ragged, missing meals, too busy to eat, just eating the scraps off children's plates. So I would say regular nutrition and stress management. And women in their 60s and beyond, I would say here is hormones and menopause uh, as a sort of one. And then the second one I would say is experiencing life, seeking happiness and joy. You know, you didn't get to that stage of your life to still be running yourself ragged or still having teenage children, right? So you want to be enjoying life um, and you've got a bit more space at this time to prioritize yourself and enjoy yourself and, you know, decode and unplug from all of those old belief systems that got you through motherhood and your teenage life and your younger life. And so create space to enjoy, put a bucket list together, go and enjoy life. So just to recap, teenagers, healthy habits, behaviors, and belief systems, and sleep. Mums in their 30s and 40s, regular nutrition, stress management. Women in their 60s and beyond, we want hormones and menopause as the focus and experiencing life, happiness, and joy. If I could go on beyond two, just staying within the confines of the question, I would say for all three groups of women that are mentioned here, there's actually three. One is hormones, one is sleep, and one is self-acceptance. That's applicable to all of us. All right. Next question. Hi, I'm John from Frankston, Victoria, Australia. My question for you, Maddie, is what is the most painful discovery that you have had? And how does this said discovery still drive you today? I'd really be interested to find out. Oh, John, that's a heavy question. And I say that because when I first listened to this question from John, when he sent it to me, however many days ago, instantly I had like this just gut feeling, this heavy feeling in my chest about how to answer this question. I also then applied my brain to the idea and thought, do I go with a brain answer or do I go with a heart gut answer? And so I'm going to go with the heart and gut answer, which is going to be quite a personal share uh, because that's what organically came up for me. And so the thing that I think is most my most painful discovery that I've had is that No matter my age, heartbreak hurts just as much as when I was 15 and fighting with my first love that I thought was everything, you know, when I was a child. It hurts just as much as it does now at my current age and with my current life experience. And that no matter how much personal development I do and how much I think I've got it all figured out, that me at the core... I'm someone that really does want to love and be loved and have a, you know, that one person that I connect with super deeply, someone that's also a friend and that I emotionally go all in. And as a person, I'm not too good really at holding back. Um, and so when I do stuff, I really go into it. Whether I effectively communicate that level of emotion to that person is certainly something that I need to work on. Um, I'm not perfect by any means, but... I've done a lot of work with psychologists and therapists and different healing modalities to be able to show up 
pretty well, I think, the vast majority of the time in intimate relationships. Of course, I'm human. That needs I need some help sorting my shit out sometimes. I've got some triggers. I'm not perfect. Um, I've got a past. And so... And so do other people and and no matter how well you think you know someone or their age or whatever it might be, other people can shock you. And anyway, before this becomes a depressing monologue of self-therapy, I'd I'd answer that with heartbreak and the loss of a deeply meaningful relationship never gets easier or better. And like, yeah, it's just, even when I think about those things, I feel a real heaviness in my heart about those chapters of my life. And of on most days, I'm, you know, a pretty happy person, but that is the thing that can derail me for a significant period of time. And so that's probably my most painful discovery of existing as a human in this world. Um, and how does it drive me today? Um, honestly, it doesn't drive me anywhere. It can actually drive me deep into a whole, a whole lot of disconnection and self-preservation with a lot of anger, hurt and regret for a period of time, I guess, which is arguably the healing phase, you know, sitting in that mess. Um, but humans are weird, right? No matter our age or past experience, almost everyone will go looking for love again. It's like this intrinsic need we have for connection, despite some people having, you know, insurmountable evidence that it hurts. And it's hard work and, you know, you're having to work with people's good parts and their bad parts and still love them and be there for them, which interestingly, going through those hardships, uh, studies show that in relationships, going through hardships and pain and suffering together and dealing with each other's bullshit actually strengthens the bond and strengthens the relationship because you've gone through hell together. You walked through the fire together. But anyway, it can obviously lead to relationship breakdown. Despite all of that, we still go looking for love again a second time, a third time, a fourth time. You know, people have fourth marriages and fifth marriages and 50th relationships and whatever it might be. So I guess the answer is that it drives me to keep looking within myself, to keep doing the work, to keep improving myself, leveling up, looking at my darkness, uh, dealing with those heavy emotions that show up when I think about it or reflect or um, I'm going through something. And so I guess, yeah, the willingness to go on is evidence that it does drive me because I, I don't want to suffer forever, right? I don't want to be trapped in my own story of suffering, um, well, whether it's my own story or, or an actual reality, a relevant reality, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I guess it drives me to pick myself back up and put myself back into the world and just try and be you know, 1% better than I was last time. And maybe if we're really lucky, I'll be able to be 2% better. (laughs) So yeah, you might be sitting there wondering, has Maddie watched too much Disney or has he been watching The Notebook? (laughs) Like, why is he talking like this? I just wanted to answer the question. um, And I hope it's okay with you listening that I've shared this way. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to answer the question in a way that, yeah, authentically came to me when when I first heard John's question. So thank you, John, for the question and triggering that share and allowing me to speak in that way. And thank you everyone for listening in this particular way to this kind of content. Um, But we can get back into some, we can get back into some food stuff now. So let's jump into the next question. Hey, Maddie, this is Chris from Omaha in the US. How can I best get enough protein and calories when I'm fasting for 16 hours? Oh, I get this question a lot, actually, with client groups and different people on social media. Um, and I'm, you know, working with people one on one as well, where this is a regular thing, where actually, the idea of intermittent fasting, and we talked about this a little earlier with Maria's question, the idea of intermittent fasting conflicts with some of the other hierarchies, the things that are higher on the hierarchy of needs than the fasting is, right? So, if you can't get enough nutrition in based on the intermittent fasting ratio that you've got right now, then we need to change that up. Because what I've found is that particularly with women, sometimes getting all of the protein in that we need is very difficult because you just don't want any more food. Like you're you're done, you're stuffed, you're feeling like, oh, I can't put any more in. And actually, if we listen to conversations with bodybuilders or even actors that need to get jacked for particular roles, you'll, uh, you'll hear them. And I heard one with Chris Hemsworth and Hugh Jackman and The Rock. And they were talking about how much they hate food <laughs> because they were all in situations and they're, they're often in situations where they're having to get super jacked and get in all of the protein they need. So remember, there's an adaptation phase of change. So a lot of people dive into intermittent fasting or any fad diet or any extreme change and they make it all on day one. So remember, there's an adaptation phase that we need to build up slowly with our, our fasting window and the amount of food that we eat. Because if we just go from massively under eating 
to massively eating, that's a huge jump that your body's not used to, your gut's not used to, your liver's not used to. And so you're going to feel stuffed. You're going to process it slowly because you haven't trained your body slowly to start increasing its metabolism and increasing its digestion and introducing this amount of food to the body, right? So there's the adaptation phase. We need to move slowly over time. There's also the idea of reverse dieting because if you've gotten to a place with your intermittent fasting where you're say 16, 18 or 20 hours a day, you're fasting and you're trying to get all the food into that window and you can't um, or you've hit a plateau because you've adapted, you need to. You might need to reverse diet for a while. So maybe you do 16-8 for three months at a time and then you go back to 12-12 for two weeks or three weeks. You know, And this again, this is an idea. I don't know what your individual circumstance is, but this is an idea. It's like we want to reverse diet for a little while because we want to break the adaptation, break the plateau. And I'm giving possibly an extreme example of going 12-12 to 16-8. But 12-12 certainly gives us more space to metabolize food, to digest food, to be able to have an earlier meal, to get extra protein in, you know, more protein in, feel okay by the next meal. Same thing, feel okay by dinner time. So you might need to reduce the fasting window and add more meals or possibly protein snacks. Do not get protein bars. They're absolutely full of shit. Protein snacks can literally be a small amount of chicken or a piece of fish, you know, a small piece of fish or whatever it might be. A snack-sized protein. Eggs, a couple of eggs. When you're eating your meal, also make sure that you eat the protein first. So if you've got a steak, you'll eat the steak first. Sure, you can have a piece of steak and put the vegetables or the salad onto it as well, onto the fork, but prioritize the protein on your plate first. It's the most important macronutrient to get into your body, especially when healing, but also in maintenance, I would argue. Um, But make sure that you don't follow that idea of eat the salad first so I've got the healthy food in my belly. Don't follow that idea. I know that was an idea that was pushed maybe in the 90s. Um, You know, eat your salad, eat your veggies first, save the best bit till last. Um, That can be problematic for two reasons. One, your gut is now prioritizing the carbohydrates over the protein for digestion. Uh, Two, means you might fill up on the carbohydrates and not eat all of the protein that you need. And actually, there's a third one, which is that possibly you overeat. Because instead of leaving some of the carbs on the plate, you're actually consuming everything that's on the plate. So it can drive you to overeat to say, oh, well, I ate all the carbs first, but Maddie said I have to also eat all the protein, right? When actually you might feel full and need to stop. So there's there's those three things. Um, the other thing you could do is do 16-8, um, do it how you're doing it, and maybe just do one or two days a week differently. So it's like on Saturday and Sunday, I do 12-12, which is maybe not the best days to choose because then it's really easy to slip in all of the weekend foods, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, but maybe pick Monday and Tuesday or Wednesday and Thursday where you do things differently. Um, or it could even be Tuesday and Thursday or Monday and Friday, whatever, you know, it's about experimentation with your body. Um, the point is with experimentation is to be consistent and repeatable. That's the only way you get usable data that makes sense. Cause otherwise we could say, yeah, but it was sleep. The problem was stress. The problem was this, the problem was that the problem, you know, the body is so complex. So you need to be consistent to collect relevant information out of yourself. And the other thing to mention is just this idea with small eating windows is that there's this mental default, particularly in the diet culture that women have been exposed to, which is that less food equals less body fat. So this idea that I'm sharing of like actually increasing your feeding window and eating more food is maybe challenging you and maybe you're feeling a bit resistant like, oh, but Maddie, if I go back to 12-12 and add breakfast, I'm going to gain weight. Possibly that's a part of the reverse dieting process. Sometimes we need to go... 10 down, 5 on. 10 down, 5 on. 10 down, 5 on. Right, that idea. Um, Otherwise, we can just get stuck at 10 down and then we're there forever. (laughs) And then we're frustrated for a long time. Um, So again, it's contextual to your situation. Um, But basically, Chris, that's how I would answer the question. If anybody has further questions or wants to continue the conversation, if you're inside my Facebook group, please put a question up or a secondary question up and keep this conversation going because I'm happy to go deeper if I haven't answered it correctly or clearly. Um, But I think the take-home message here is pick one or two days a week, create Um, a little bit more space on those days for food and see how you feel and collect the data and go from there. It might mean you end up your normal being 14.10 moving forward because you can get enough protein in. I would be more happy with that situation, three meals a day with that 14.10 and no snacks than going 16 hours a day and you being stumped forever. So that's my feedback. All right, we've got the final question. 
Hi, my name is Jalai from the Philippines. And my question is, over the course of 300 episodes, what has been the most surprising or unexpected thing you've learned about health and wellness? Oh, this is Jelai. This is a question from Jelai. So Jelai was my first ever staff member. Uh, she's such a fantastic human. She joined the podcast and managed the podcast and possibly emailed you or emailed guests and arranged times and looked after my calendar. And she's amazing. And she was with us for a year, two years, I forget, and then went on to uh, have a baby and be a mum. So, you know, She's still here with us, still in the background, and I absolutely love Jelly. She's so fantastic. So, Jelly, thank you for this question. Um, it's a good one. It's a good one. And, and I really scrolled through the episodes to try and stimulate my thoughts on this and think, oh, what is the most surprising or unexpected thing that I've learned? So I want to answer this in two parts. I want to answer this on a global idea and also a practical health idea. Um, so the practical health idea that I've really learned or that's maybe not been unexpected but my understanding of its importance was small. And now it's like, I think one of the defining things about human health, and maybe that'll be different in five years, who knows. But right now, that is the importance of the sun and just how little we're outside and how that affects our health. Um, And not just because of vitamin D. There's, I won't go into it because it's a very deep, complex topic. um, And I need to get some people on the show to talk about it. Um, But the importance of the sun and going outside and it being on your skin is just life altering. If And that's why so many people get better when they move north in Australia or people move towards the equator to retire and everybody feels better uh, when they are on holidays in a sunny location. The sun has so much to do with it. Sure, the stress levels and the fact you're on holiday and you're a bit disconnected, but almost all diseases in the world are less in frequency the closer you are to the equator. Therefore, the closer you are to the sun, the more sun you're getting, the more consistent the weather. So the importance of the sun, and I cannot stress it enough, you know, and sunscreen, get that shit out of your life. Physical barriers or um, or sit in the shade, basically. Wear light-colored clothing that you don't get, you can't get burnt with. Use hats, but we need to get that skin into the sun daily on a regular basis, not nothing for six months and then go out on a weekend and spend 20 hours in the sun and burn yourself until you're an unrecognizable sausage on the barbecue, right? We don't want that. We want to build what Jack Cruz calls a solar callus over time, daily exposure. So there's that. And then the other thing that I would mention that I guess I'm finding more surprising and was a little bit unexpected is that, you know, I came from the world of science um, and being a scientist and worked in medicine and, you know, part of clinical trials and doing my work in different ways. And I wasn't like super high up the hierarchy or a very important person in the cancer hospital. But my point is that I came from that world of extremely structured thinking and data and that there's all of these subtypes and subcategories and differences in everybody. And the thing that I keep realizing more and more, the more conversations I have, the more private conversations I have in my personal life, one-on-one with clients, groups with clients, you know, Facebook group with non-clients, people that are inquiring about programs is that we're all the same. We're all the same. We're all wishing we could be better. We're all wishing we were somewhere we aren't right now. We're all navigating the voice in our head that says we're not good enough. We're all wishing we could have eaten a bit more healthy than we did last week. Um, We wish we had have gone to yoga. We all wish we did heavier weights at the gym. You know, it's like the narrative inside our brain and all of the things that we need to get right in our life to be healthy is pretty much the same for everybody. And I say that as the core basic principles of health and wellness. Yeah, just every conversation I have, you know, and sure, you could argue that there's a bias of the type of conversations that I have. um, And the conversations would be different if I hung out in a bodybuilding gym, no doubt. But I think even the bodybuilders, they're wishing they could have gone a bit heavier. They're wishing they could have gone a little bit healthier. They're wishing they could have gone to bed a little bit earlier. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the stage of life where you're at. We are so similar. Everybody's thinking the same stuff. And not enough people talk about it out loud to realize that it's normal to think that way. Or rather, it's common to think that way. And hanging out on podcasts like this or in programs like I run is all about changing that internal narrative. And and something that people I work with often say is that they feel a, a deep sense of calm or they feel much calmer when they finish working with me or during the process and they've stopped judging themselves and being so harsh and being a bit more present. And the way that those kind of things impact your life is far beyond food. You'd be happier at work. You can be happier in your relationship. 
You know, you can be in control of your life rather than being run by sugar cravings, rather than being run by the the adrenaline that you live on because you're trying to keep up with, you know, what your mum expects of you and all of that kind of stuff. So I think the thing that's most surprising is that despite all the scientific subcategories and groups and, you know, you're a little bit different in this way and this way, and we all like to be different, but also more importantly, we like to belong. And I think we all belong to the same tribe of people that wish things were getting better and want a little bit of help doing that. And I think that that's a really comforting thing to know that everyone you look at today is probably thinking the same thoughts. If they're not thinking them right now, they're probably going to think them later. And I think there's something really beautiful in that. And the good thing is that we can work together and relate to one another and understand one another, which allows healing. And that's why I think healing and growth happens in community. There's a lot of research around that in addiction contexts. And it's the reason that I prefer to run group programs because I know the benefit to the individual will be far greater knowing that you are okay, you are normal, that your thoughts that you're having are human. And if you do have an interest in changing them, we can do that and we can do it together. So yeah, that's how I'd answer that. Um, Thank you everybody that sent in a question and that threw around ideas for this episode. And thank you so much for being here for all 300 episodes. I'm very grateful uh, for all of your support. And if you want to continue supporting the show, Number one is just keep listening. Um, send me ideas, you know, post in, in my groups, join programs, come into my world and, you know, work with me. That's available to people as well. Um, and write reviews, as we talked about at the start, reviews, ratings, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm really excited. I really need to organize a little celebration in my own life uh, with episode 300. So um, I think celebrating the small wins. I was taught that by a very important person in my life a long time ago and it stuck with me, um, is celebrating the little wins. So, you know, in my world, podcasts happen every day, right? So it's like, oh, episode 300, just another episode. But yeah, this is worthy, I think, of acknowledgement and having a little get together or some kind of celebration. So if you could join me in that celebration by sharing this on social media. So thanks in advance for doing that. But I would love to know where you joined the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast story. Was it episode one? Did you find us at episode 163, 49? Like how long have you been a part of this community? So please share this in your social media, tag me and just write celebrating 300 episodes. I started at episode, insert the number. I think that would be really cool. Um, And if you're in my Facebook groups, please post in there. Which episode number did you find me first or find this show first? I would love to know. Um, And also, if you want more episodes like this uh, where you get to send in a question, let me know. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. So I'm hoping that people listen all the way through and enjoy it and like hearing the voices of other people that are a part of the the global community of of listeners. So if you want to send in a question or you think these episodes are a cool idea, I would love that feedback because I can do more of them and get more questions from you and play them on the show. And who knows, maybe one day you can be a guest on the show. How cool would that be? Anyway, as always, thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to having you on the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.